Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is a recording of an event that was held live over the internet on March 4th, 2021, with the comedian, playwright, and scholar of Renaissance poetry, Andrew Doyle. The topic was Free Speech and Why It Matters, which is also the title of Doyle's most recent book, a timely and sensitively written reflection on one of the most contested questions of contemporary life. What most impressed me about this book was not simply its argument, but its tone, the spirit, you might say, it was written in. Many people can summarize arguments in favor of freedom of speech, but Doyle is not looking to preach to the converted. He's looking to persuade those who disagree. So he steelmans the arguments against freedom of speech. And what impresses me about this is that he is thereby rejecting the coercion that seeks to shut speech down, that is, by affirming the freedom of thought of his opponents. In other words, the book doesn't merely argue for a principle, but instantiates the very principle it seeks to defend. Our civic discourse and our culture at large would be in much better shape, I think, if more of us would do the same. That is, if we would ask ourselves whether our critiques, our actions, our tweets, and so on, are true to the principles they espouse. Because we can't, for example, remedy injustice by acting unjustly, or tackle partisan division by demonizing opponents, or counter nihilism simply by asserting our own will to power. Doyle has given us something very important and culturally necessary, I think, both in argument and in style. We'll be holding another live lecture soon as we seek to build a community of humanistic inquiry for anyone, anywhere. You can sign up for updates on our website at www.ralston.ac. You can also follow us in all the usual places online and join us these days for live conversations on Clubhouse and ThinkSpot and elsewhere. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephen Blackwood. I'm the president of Ralston College, a new venture endeavor in higher education based in Savannah. It's a great pleasure to have you all here with us today for an event that I'm both excited about and which I think is on a topic of great cultural importance. It is my great pleasure to welcome to this series Dr. Andrew Doyle, the uh, satirist, scholar of Renaissance literature, defender of uh, free speech, and I uh, think I'm not out of line to say uh, also my friend um, into this uh, series. Andrew has just written a absolutely fantastic book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. This has just come out last week, uh, I think a week ago today, if I'm not mistaken. In any event, it's widely available. Um, free speech and why it matters. I was expecting this to be a very damn good book uh, because I know Andrew and admire his work and the subtlety of his mind. Um, but I uh, 
trying to think of a uh, an elegant way of saying it was even better than I thought it was. Uh, thought it would be. I think you could subtitle this book um, "Free Speech: Not What You Thought It Was" for reasons that I hope this conversation will will get into. The format of our event today is going to be uh, very straightforward. Uh, momentarily, I'll turn things over to Andrew. He will give us a uh, talk of uh, as long as he likes, probably uh, you know, t- 20 to 30 minutes or so, shorter or longer uh, as the spirit moves him. And then uh, he and I will proceed to have a conversation uh, back and forth uh, in which we will be hoping that your questions from the audience will play a not insignificant role. Um, so uh, please do submit those questions uh, in the chat. Uh, just a little housekeeping. I feel as though I have to tell you, uh, having uh, uh, played the entirety of that magnificent piece of music, which you'll all recognize, those of you who follow our podcast, um, I should say, by the way, we're live tweeting and live streaming this event. If you'd like to follow us on on Twitter at Ralston College. Um, but that piece of music is, uh, of course, by uh, by the great Bach. It's the Toccata in Fugue in D minor played by Gerard uh, Gerhard, I guess it is, Opitz. It's actually transcribed from organ into piano. Anyway, I just absolutely love that. And I hope uh, that we're going to get a chance to talk about freedom and the arts uh, in this conversation, which plays a wonderful uh, role. Uh, One of the most moving parts of this book is when uh, Andrew uh, talks about that in this terrific book. Anyway, without further ado, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Over to you. Thank you very much, Stephen. And Thank you to everyone at Ralston College, which is a, an institution that I wholeheartedly support. Um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Uh, I did a book launch the, the other night over Zoom. Uh, so that was quite a, an interesting experience, having this invisible audience that I can't see. But it's good to know that there are lots of people out there. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have some interesting questions afterwards. Um, I'm going to keep this quite loose. I'm going to cover some of the, the aspects of the book. But I'm also going to talk a little bit about why I felt the book was necessary to write. Uh, I think if you'd have asked me 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whether I, I would be writing a book about this, about free speech, I would have considered it extremely unlikely because my feeling has always been that surely in a liberal democracy, uh, the notion that freedom of speech needs to be robustly defended is uh, is an odd one because I, I took it as a given. I took it for granted. Um, and it's only my reading of late uh, over the past 15 years, 20 years or so, that has made me realize that free speech needs to be continually defended in every successive generation and that it isn't something that we can afford to be complacent about. And I feel as though we are reaching a, a moment uh, where th- the principle appears to be falling apart uh, and more and more people are becoming skeptical about, about the reasons why we need it. So something's gone amiss. In other words, I, I, I say in the book, that a lot of people are, are having trouble putting their finger on what the problem might be. And I put it like this in the book. I say that the culture wars have left a substantial number of us feeling as though we are no longer on secure ground and that the, the tremors are too persistent. And that's an idea that I developed. But I think it is this gnawing sense that a, lo- a lot of us have, um, that our freedoms are, are slipping away in this piecemeal fashion. And that's something I want to develop a little bit. So I want to structure this in three ways. I want to ask three questions, really. So the first question that I want to ask is, where are we now in terms of freedom of speech? What is the current situation? The second question I want to ask is, how did we get here? And then finally, I want to ask what we're going to do about it. And it's my hope that in the question and answer session and in the discussion afterwards with Stephen, 
uh, we might come up with some ideas because I, I, I have to say I'm not entirely sure about the answer to that third question. So I'll start with the, the, the first question, where are we now? Um, in the book, I've tried to talk about the situation in the UK and, and the US as, as well, uh, and uh, touching on other areas such as Canada. And I think um, obviously that I'm going to talk a bit about the UK um, because we, of course, do not have a First Amendment. Uh, so we don't have constitutionally protected free speech. And as a result of that, I think we can see why things are slipping. And to start, I'm going to start with the, the anecdote that I mentioned at the opening of the book, which is that of the entrepreneur and former constable Harry Miller. Now, I'm aware that a lot, a lot of the audience here tonight are, are in the US and will not be familiar with this case, but I think it's quite instructive. So one day, this, this entrepreneur, Harry Miller, was contacted by a member of the police force. And the police officer said to him that uh, he was investigating what we call a non-crime hate incident. It transpires that Harry Miller had retweeted a poem which was deemed to be offensive. And somebody had contacted the police and said, I'm offended by this poem. I should emphasize that Harry Miller did not write the poem. The poem was merely retweeted from his Twitter account. And so the police officer contacted him and said that this was a concern because the poem was allegedly a transphobic poem. Uh, in other words, it was critical of, of the idea that, that people are able to biologically change sex. Um, Harry Miller said to him, well, have I committed a crime? And the police officer said, no, you've not, a, not committed a crime. This is a non-crime hate incident and uh, a victim has got in touch with us. And Harry Miller said, why are you referring to this person as a victim rather than a complainant uh, if no crime has been committed? And in fact, why are you bothering contacting me at, at all? And he was utterly baffled by this. And as a former police officer himself, uh, he knew that this, this, this felt irregular to him. And then the police officer in question used a phrase which I think anyone who is familiar with Orwell or any form of dystopian fiction, in fact, will find very chilling. And the phrase was this, we need to check your thinking. So I'll just repeat that phrase, we need to check your thinking. And the police officer went on to, to uh, explain to him that he'd been through police training and, and he understood, uh, and he gave him some pseudoscience about, uh, about uh, transitioning and, and this kind of thing and talked about how people can be born with the, a male body, but a female brain and this kind of thing. And ultimately, Harry Miller's thinking was not along the lines that the College of Policing advance and propagate through their training schemes. That's that's the bottom line, really. So this is quite this became quite a well-known uh, event in the UK only because Harry Miller took them to task and eventually take, took them to the court. And the High Court did, in fact, rule that the police had been overzealous, but stopped short of suggesting that the College of Policing should revise their guidelines. Uh, the other week here in the UK, we had uh, another incident where a, an image went viral of a group of police officers who were standing outside a supermarket with a big digital billboard. It was a billboard on the back of a van, uh, and it had been designed to shift slogans uh, every now and then. One of the big slogans that came up on this digital billboard was, being offensive is an offence. And this caused a lot of consternation because, of course, being offensive in of itself is, isn't a crime. And ultimately, after people complained, the police apologised and said, no, that's not that's not entirely correct. However, and this is the, the, the problem with this. Firstly, that billboard had been designed by a committee. Police officers had sat together in meetings and, and discussed the wording. And it's absolutely clear uh, that the way that the police in the UK operate, they believe that, in fact, being offensive is a, a, a criminal offence. You often see tweets from the police department saying, expect a visit from us this weekend if you say anything offensive online, for instance. 
So there's that. The second point about this this particular story is that, in fact, they were correct. Uh, we have a thing in the UK called the 2003 Electronic Communications Act, which deems that anything that is uh, written online that is considered grossly offensive is, in fact, against the law and can see you prosecuted. And that is the benchmark. The phrase is grossly offensive. And that's all uh, that a prosecutor needs to determine. And there doesn't need to be any suggestion uh, that there was hateful intent. And I'll explain why why that is. So firstly, the, 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 cross, the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK has guidelines uh, related to hate crime and hate speech. And this is what they say. They say that hate crime is any criminal offence which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice based on a person's disability or perceived disability, race or perceived race, or religion or perceived religion, or sexual orientation or perceived sexual orientation, or a person who is transgender or perceived to be transgender. So, And they also mention that a hate incident is defined as a non-criminal act that is perceived by the victim or anyone else to be motivated by hostility or prejudice based on the five protected characteristics that I've already outlined. You'll notice that the word perceived uh, appears a number of times in that document. And this is the trouble. This is still the case. If you go to the uh, UK government's hate speech online website, it will tell you exactly the same thing. So, for instance, if someone were to criticise me, uh, if someone were to even criticise my book, and I decide that I think that that criticism is motivated by homophobia, say, then that will be recorded in the UK if I contact the police as a, uh, a non-crime hate incident, at the very least, if not a hate crime, and does form part of hate crime statistics. So this is um, a real problem that we have in the UK. If you take the last, uh, from the period 2014 to 2019, uh, there were in fact 100,000 non-crime hate incidents recorded by police. So they're spending an awful lot of time on this. You might think it doesn't matter because a non-crime hate incident doesn't result in prosecution. That's true, it doesn't. However, it does show up on criminal disclosure checks. A lot of jobs that you, you apply for in the UK, you are required to take what's called a, a disclosure and barring service check, a DBS check. And if anything comes up, employers are likely to be nervous and possibly not hire you. So it does have ramifications that someone in the UK can simply contact the police, make a complaint, say that they perceive that something was was uh, based on hostility or prejudice due to protected characteristics. And it's on your record forevermore and it could actually cost you work. But quite aside from that, there's a bigger principle at stake here, which is, of course, that the police in a, in a civilised society have absolutely no business investigating citizens uh, for things that they say or think. And I specifically say think as well, because I feel we're losing sight of that as well, because uh, a lot, certainly in America, it's very common. But over here, more and more companies and corporations are instigating what is called unconscious bias training or implicit bias tests. Um, and of course, all of the research into those tests has proven that they don't actually have any effect whatsoever. In fact, in some cases, the research has shown that these tests can have the impact of making a work environment more racist, not less. But quite aside from that, your employer doesn't have the right in a liberal society to go probing around your private thoughts. So all of this stuff is is happening and it is very troubling. Just to broaden this out a little bit to give you another flavour of what's going on at the moment, um, I've talked about the non-crime hate incidents recorded in England and Wales. In Scotland, um, we have effectively a kind of one-party state in Scotland. There's a party called the Scottish National Party, the SNP, uh, who 
have no real competition. Um, they do dominate Scottish politics and they are very authoritarian. They have a, a, a track record of authoritarianism um, from minimum pricing for alcohol to uh, a ban on two for one pizzas because they don't trust their uh, their citizens to look after themselves, this kind of thing. So they have that kind of nanny state quality. Uh, they also have a justice secretary called Humza Yousaf, who is keen, he has uh, formulated this new hate crime bill, which to this day, they are still persisting with this hate crime bill. And specifically, the, the trouble with this bill is that it would uh, criminalise conversations in your private home if they are deemed to, quote unquote, stir up hatred, whatever that means. Similarly, there's actually a, a section of that bill which pertains specifically to the performance, the public performance of a play. And Humza Yusuf was asked about this uh, in the Scottish Parliament. And he said, well, yes, but if a, if a neo-Nazi, I'm paraphrasing here, but someone from the far right uh, were to create a play, a drama, in order to recruit people to their cause and put it on, we should be able to prosecute that person. Now, I don't know any neo-Nazis myself, but I'm pretty sure they're not into amateur dramatics, and that's not how they go about uh, rec recruiting. So I don't know where he's getting that from, but that that is a worry. Scotland, as I've said, particularly authoritarian. And there was one, one case which I'd like to mention to you because it really was a wake-up call to me. Um, and this was uh, just a few years ago now, and this was a case of a man called Marcus Meekin, who online is known as Count Dankula. And you can gather from the name that, that he's a, a, a comedian type person. So he creates YouTube clips um, and funny videos uh, and memes uh, in order to just be mischievous. That's the purpose of it. And he created a film which you might have heard of. It was just a short three minute video in which he trained his girlfriend's pug to give a Nazi salute and to react enthusiastically whenever it heard uh, some trigger phrases. Now, the trigger phrases in of themselves could easily have caused offence because those phrases were Sieg Heil and Gas the Jews, obviously offensive phrases. But the offence, of course, is mitigated by the joke because the joke is that this very cute, adorable pug dog is dancing about and even doing a little Nazi salute itself. He trained the dog to do this in response to these terms. And in fact, the sheer uh, ferocity of the terms themselves uh, is the point of the juxtaposition. That is the point of the joke. I know I, I, I needn't explain the joke because it is absolutely obvious. And what's more to the point, he actually explained the joke within the context of the video itself. He said to whatever audience was out there, I'm not a Nazi. I'm just trying to uh, play a trick on my girlfriend because she keeps going on about how cute her dog is. So I'm going to teach it to become a Nazi. So that's, that's the joke. However, he was arrested for this. Uh, and when he was arrested, the police officer who arrested him said to him, you are an actual Nazi who's trying to train people to become Nazis. And uh, I've written about this a number of times. And I have said that I would have thought that if uh, someone was, in fact, trying to recruit people uh, to a kind of Fourth Reich, then I don't think they would have done that through the medium of pug dogs. But nevertheless, the Scottish police thought differently. And it went as far as it went to court. Uh, it was a two year uh, investigation and trial process. And in the end, he was found guilty, even though... Uh, the prosecution conceded that there was no evidence of hateful intent. There was no evidence other than uh, the material itself, the video itself, and that the prosecution and the judge in question knew what was going on in his mind just by intuition. That appears to be the case because cybercrime intelligence had, in fact, investigated all of his emails, all of his texts, everything he'd ever sent and found absolutely no evidence uh, whatsoever. So it's a, it's a, it's, it is, seems flippant because it's about a silly video and it's a joke video. But actually, the principle is actually quite frightening because he was found guilty and he was ultimately uh, he did escape jail time, but he was ultimately fined 800 pounds. Now, the reason I mention that is because that is a very clear example of where a joke uh, has landed someone 
uh, with a criminal record. Uh, at the moment in the UK, uh, there's a man waiting to see. He might face up to six months in prison because he sent a, a, a nasty tweet about the late Captain Tom Moore, uh, who is a, the, the veteran who raised an awful lot of money for the NHS. And it was an extremely distasteful tweet. It wasn't a joke. It was just a nasty tweet. And um, I don't approve of it. And I'm sure most of the people watching wouldn't approve of it. But I approve less of the state locking someone up for, for being offensive. So I think that's that's the, the the problem here. And I think we'll probably get into that later is this idea that when you are defending free speech, you often find yourself uh, defending the speech rights of not very nice people because of course uncontroversial speech requires absolutely no protection. So it, it, it doesn't need your assistance. And the problem as well is when you do defend those sorts of people uh, who want to say these awful things, things that you don't approve of, you are often accused of complicity. People will say, well, you obviously agree with what they're saying. And actually, that's absolutely not the case. One of the um, famous examples that I mentioned in the book is, of course, Skokie in, in Chicago in the 1970s, uh, where the ACLU um, supported the rights of neo-Nazis to march. And uh, I have read the book by the head of the ACLU at the time, Nea, a man called Nea, uh, who, dis who the book's called Defending My Enemy. And he says about that he was effectively defending the rights of neo-Nazis to speak freely because he wanted to defeat neo-Nazism, because he understood that if you dilute the principle of free speech, then you dilute the very means by which we can resist uh, such terrible people. And it, it's, so the, prop, the, the question we should always ask in these cases is, is not, are we defending the, the, the speech that this awful person has said, or are we actually standing up against the possibility of the state legislating and making decisions about what speech is acceptable and what speech is not acceptable? And that really is the key question. And if anyone who knows anything about history will know it's never a good idea to allow the state to have those powers. It's very short-sighted, even if you have a benevolent ruler at any given time. That is not forever. And you establish a precedent in law that can be used forevermore. And, and, and we know this happens again and again. So um, in the UK, we have problems with hate speech. As I say, you have your First Amendment. Although I note that there are some activists in America who are uh, busy hoping to undermine the First Amendment and are keen to change this so that hate speech is no longer constitutionally protected. Now, for me, the question of hate speech is an interesting one. It feels like a relatively recent invention in terms of the, the phrase and the concept. And more, more often than not, what it is, is it's a way to uh, carve out exceptions to free speech protections. It isn't really so much hate speech as speech that we hate. And I think that's that's been evidenced again and again by people who cry hate speech whenever they hear something that they, they perceive to be offensive. It is, in fact, the justification that social media platforms give uh, for deleting the accounts of gender critical feminists who are not transphobic, who are not hateful, but are concerned uh, about the possibility uh, that gender self-identification, if someone who is, for instance, anatomically male, can identify as female and gain access to women that, women's only spaces, such as prisons or indeed uh, domestic violence refuge centres, or in fact sports, you know, um, uh, there, there are some physical dangers which are, could be the ramification of someone who is biologically male playing against biologically female uh, athletes. And, and there's no doubt about that. So, um, but th this is then referred to as hate speech as a means to not engage with the debate. And therefore we can just put that aside. We can say those people are transphobic and hateful. We don't have to talk to them. We don't have to take their, their position seriously. And of course, the problem with that is it's, 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 it's just a means to evade the debate. And actually, when it comes to sensitive issues like that, we need more discussion, not less. So that, that gives you another example of, of hate speech. But hate speech in of itself is not something that can possibly 
be meaningfully defined. We've, we know that the European Court of Human Rights uh, and UNESCO have conceded this isn't something that can be defined. If you if you look at there's a, a book by Paul Coleman called Censored, which uh, meticulously goes through all of the hate speech reg regulations and legislation across the whole of Europe. And actually, most of the book is is uh, facsimiles of all of these uh, of this this legislation. So you can see for yourself, every country appears to have a different definition of what is hateful. And that gets to the nub of the problem is that hate is far too nebulous a term uh, to to be, to be used in legislation successfully or without the possibility uh, of ex exploitation and abuse. The other problem, quite aside from all the the legal issues that we've got, is is this question of cancel culture. And I think um, this is something that is often uh, frequently misunderstood. It's a phrase that's often used, and it's a phrase that's often derided. Uh, you'll hear a lot of people talking about how cancel culture doesn't exist. All it is is uh, we're holding the powerful to account, and they're not used to that. And to give an example of this, you'll you'll probably have heard of the letter that appeared in Harper's magazine uh, relatively recently. Um, I spoke to one of the the men who uh, formulated the original draft of that letter. That's uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, and um, uh, the letter was signed by all sorts of people: people like Margaret Atwood, Noam Chomsky, J.K. Rowling, and Salman Rushdie. So people with a lot of left wing credentials. And in the letter. Uh, it was quite an important step because this was one of the first time that major left-wing figures had stood up and, and said uh, that they support the principle of free speech and they're worried about the idea of cancel culture. So what do we mean? And people took this letter as evidence. Well, look at all these people. They're successful. They're, they're, they're rich. They're, they, they're not being cancelled. What are they talking about? But of course, it was precisely their success that enabled them to write the letter in the first place because they are not at risk of cancellation. The example of JK Rowling is a good one. Uh, she's obviously the world's most famous uh, and wealthiest authors. Uh, she cannot be canceled. So people, you know, even though she has been through under a tirade of attacks, she's been accused of transphobia, even though she's never said anything transphobic. Uh, she's been uh, monstered, demonized, dehumanized. People have sent her rape threats, threats of violence, all kinds of things. Uh, on the basis of nothing. In fact, if you want to know what her views on on uh, gender and uh, trans issues are, all you need to do is read the very compassionate blog post she wrote about it uh, on her website, and it clears everything up. But a lot of the, her critics, in fact, don't read it. And if they do read it, they do so uncharitably, and they intuit a motive that isn't there. So it is worth uh, checking that out, however. But of course, J.K. Rowling has not been cancelled. Her publisher didn't cancel her last book. And the reason for that is she's too successful. However, if you're a less lucrative author, it's perfectly possible that you will be cancelled. And in fact, that did happen here in the UK. In Scotland, there's an author called Gillian Phillip, who is a Scottish children's author, and she lost her publisher. She was ditched because she stood up for J.K. Rowling. So um, it just goes to show that, in fact, success does protect you from cancellation. And that means that the majority, vast majority of people who are quote unquote cancelled are ordinary working people who don't have the kind of reputation, the kind of clout, uh, the kind of financial resources uh, to protect themselves in these situations. Fortunately, we've got a new organization in this country called the Free Speech Union, which was set up by Toby Young, and they have defended all sorts of people valiantly uh, who have been um, threatened with a loss of earning, a loss of income, or indeed potentially fired or taken to court for things that they have said. And we're not talking about racists and, and homophobes and people who want to go on neo-Nazi rants. We're talking about normal people who have said something that has maybe been misinterpreted or misunderstood, or maybe they've misspoken. But the judgment has come down, and this is what cancel culture means. It's, it's typically a very slight uh, indiscretion. 
and the response is massively disproportionate. It's mostly driven online. So people form these gangs and they dogpile and they attack. They dox, they put out private information. Uh, they contact people's employers because they don't just want to destroy their reputation. They want to destroy their livelihood, uh, the way in which they earn a living. And, um, and that's what we mean by cancel culture, this very disproportionate reaction uh, to mistakes, ultimately. But not even always mistakes, sometimes just simply unfashionable or unpopular opinions. And this is the culture now. So uh, a good example was was when uh, the editor of Waitrose Food magazine, a man called Sitwell, um, he received an email from a freelance journalist saying that she wanted to write about vegan food. And he replied with an email that was very flippant and silly. And it was he made some silly joke about, well, maybe we should round up vegans and feed feed force feed them meat or something like this. I mean, it wasn't I'm paraphrasing. It was just a silly email. But instead of saying to him, as this journalist could have done, I was offended by that. I'm a vegan. I was upset. Can we talk about this? Um, she instead screenshot the email, posted it online uh, and shamed him. And in fact, he was forced to resign from his post. Um, that's an example of a kind of attitudinal shift. I think uh, more and more people have got to the position where they don't uh, call in. It's this idea of the difference between call in culture and call out culture. They don't call in with someone and say, oh, this offended me, this upset me. Uh, they publicly shame. It's the sort of equivalent of the medieval period where you might put someone in the stocks and that's what you want. In other words, cancel culture is really revenge dressed up. Uh, the singer Nick Cave has described it as mercy's antithesis. And I think that is that is behind it. It's that kind of uh, bestial pleasure that a lot, a lot of people get, this kind of schadenfreude when they see other people suffer and they want to be a part of that. And it's a base instinct, but it's one that is now legitimized uh, broadly by, by, by broad behavior, but also uh, egged on by certain elements of the media who think that this is in any way justifiable. So that's, that's the, the cancel culture. And I, I, there is a chapter in the book on cancel culture where I developed this uh, a bit more fully. Um, but I do think it's worth addressing because so many people don't really know what it what it means. And if if you're and, and because so many people doubt that it exists, if you're in any doubt about this, um, when I was compiling examples of people who had lost their jobs in this way, uh, the list went on and on. I mean, it, 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 there were hundreds and I couldn't do that. So I've just mentioned about nine or 10 in the in the footnotes of the book um, to give just a couple of examples in in June 2015 the Nobel Prize winning biochemist Tim Hunt was forced to resign from his honorary position uh, at University College London because a journalist misrepresented jokes that he'd made at a conference in South Korea um, you may have heard in April 2019 the British philosopher Roger Scruton was sacked as housing advisor to the Conservative government uh, because a journalist at the New Statesman doctored his statements when, from an interview, posted them online. These were statements that, in fact, uh, Scruton was being explicitly opposed to racism. By taking out a few words here and there, the journalist from the New Statesman uh, made them sound like racist statements. And as a result, he was forced to step down uh, from that commission. I don't believe he ever got an apology from the New Statesman for that. Um, there's uh, all sorts of examples here. There's a man who was sacked from a supermarket after sharing a video online of the comedian Billy Connolly. Uh, the, 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 the segment mocked Islamic suicide bombers. Um, but even though the source of that, uh, the, the clip, the stand-up clip that he shared was on a DVD that was being sold by the supermarket itself. So there was, there was a bit of incoherence there. Anyway, more, there are so many examples of this and there are actually whole threads that you, I could link you to on Twitter and online 
uh, of people who are compiling examples of all of these um, instances of cancel culture. So when someone says to you, cancel culture isn't true, it's either because they don't know what we mean by cancel culture, or uh, they're just they're, they're engaging in denialism. Uh, and that's that's something that we need to be aware of. Other problems, just in terms of this question of where we are now, I'm just watching the time, I don't want to go overboard. Uh, the question of academic freedom is a, is a serious issue. There was a, a 2020 report by the Policy Exchange in the UK that found that one in three conservative scholars claim to self-censor for fear of consequences to their career. There's an article in The Atlantic, I've noted down here, a survey of 445 academics in the United States by the Heterodox Academy found that more than half the respondents consider expressing views beyond a certain consensus in an academic setting quite dangerous to their career trajectory. What we have, therefore, is irrefutable evidence that a significant proportion of the academic body are not being honest about their opinion um, because they think they might get fired or at least will be passed over for promotion or not get tenure. Uh, this is a terrible scenario to be in and that this does speak to the kind of institutional capture uh, when it comes to um, this movement. And I think academic freedom is, is, is something we're going to have to, to talk about. I think it's uh, it's where a lot of the problems have originated in terms of free speech, because an awful lot of academics are simply not in favour of free speech or don't know what it means. I recently had a, a group of academics bombarding me uh, with abuse online because I'd have blocked some of them. Of course, I, I don't actually ever block people if they politely disagree. I only block people if they're abusive or they always assume bad faith or try and intuit my motive or misrepresent my argument because I don't believe you can argue with someone who behaves in such a childish way. Um, but they were so angry that they thought their free speech was being violated because I'd blocked them on Twitter. Of course, anyone who knows anything about free speech knows that the right not to listen is an important aspect of free speech. And I was merely exercising my own. And it, it's such a fundamental uh, misunderstanding that it's quite depressing to see some of the most um, ed supposedly educated people in the world not understanding such a basic premise. Uh, in fact, one a professor from Oxford University was so incensed uh, by this that he contacted my publisher, the publisher of my book on free speech, uh, presumably in the hope of getting that book cancelled with no sense of irony or self-awareness there. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, in addition to academic freedom, one of the other problems we face at the moment uh, is um, press freedom. And uh, I say this particularly in the UK uh, because there've been a lot of efforts recently over here to rein in the media, uh, often in response to uh, needlessly intrusive behavior. We have very intrusive press over here, perhaps more so than the US. Uh, I think we're quite famous for it. Um, and sometimes illegal contact, conduct by journalists, things like phone hacking uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, my, my response to this is always apply the law. If a journalist has broken the law, uh, then he or she uh, should be um, prosecuted as a result. But the idea of clamping down on press freedom is a problem. Um, the, the government tried to instigate, there was a regulating body here called Impress, the Independent Monitor for the Press, uh, which was established in the wake of the Leveston Inquiry. And this was commissioned by the UK government. No newspapers in this country signed up to this independent regulator because they understood there was a real problem actually with, this, with the proposals because they were suggesting um, that uh, if somebody uh, sued a, a paper, for instance, then the paper themselves would be subject to all the costs, even if they won. And this would effectively be a means by which the powerful uh, would be able to muzzle their critics. And I think therefore press freedom is something we all have to be vigilant about. Every tyrant who ever comes to power, every despot, one of the first things they always do is they clamp down on press freedom. You'll know that from reading about, about World War II and, and Nazi Germany, for instance. So one of the, the second question I wanted to address is, is how we got here. 
And I think another instance of, of uh, the current discourse of free speech is quite revealing in this regard. And that is the question of big tech. Uh, we, we have seen a situation where a very small group of um, multi-billion dollar corporations, a, a corporate oligopoly, if you like, has seized control of the de facto public square and they can make decisions about public discourse that has serious ramifications uh, throughout the world, you know? And um, this to me is a major threat to free speech because although libertarians that I've spoken to and, and um, those who support the free market will always say, well, private companies can do whatever they please. Well, I feel that argument is about 20 years out of date because they wield such incredible power. And we've always known that when small groups of companies have too much power, that's why we introduce antitrust laws. We always know that there's, there's a problem there. Um, and indeed, with the, cu the current state of affairs, it's not as though you can you can simply set up your own platform. We saw what happened with Parler when that happened. The, the big tech companies, the Silicon Valley tech giants just found a way to shut that down. They, de they destroy any competition in its nascent form. And they have very uh, bizarre and uh, unclear um, terms of service that are deliberately vague. Uh, uh, and formulated deliberately so, so that they can ban people simply for having opinions they don't agree with. So we're not talking about illegal content here. Uh, we're talking about content that they just don't like or find offensive. The reason they can censor with impunity is because of a thing called the uh, Communications Decency Act, and it's section 230 of that. And that was set up for very good reason, because media outlets often have comment sections, and they can't possibly be expected to be held accountable for everything that, get post that gets posted in those comment sections. People could upload illegal material, and if a news outlet failed to remove that material, then they would be liable. So they do need those legal protections. Uh, the, the problem is that now, whenever Facebook or Twitter or anyone like that is sued for content that appears that they have failed to remove, say it's libelous content or something like that, their defense will always be Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And they will say, we are not publishers, we are platforms. So therefore, we are not responsible. However, if they are determined to censor opinions they don't like, delete accounts of people for political reasons, exercise such clear political bias, uh, then in fact, they are curating the material on their site and they are acting like publishers. If that is the case, then they should be held accountable for the content on their site. They can't have it both ways. And this is something that we're going to have to address. I don't think the current Biden administration will be interested in addressing this, uh, largely because, um, of course, the, the tech giants are on side politically. But it is something that needs to be uh, addressed because it will ultimately affect anyone, no matter who you support politically. It's not a good idea to have uh, small groups of, of uh, billionaire companies who uh, have more collective power than any nation state, but none of the democratic accountability. So I think when it comes to free speech, that's that's a really key question. And in terms of uh, how we got here, well, I think it comes down to the ideology, the driving ideology that you see among big tech tells us pretty much everything we need to know. And that driving ideology is really uh, what we would call critical social justice or social justice or intersectional politics or uh, identity politics. People don't know what to call it, do they? Um, colloquially, it's become known as woke ideology. Uh, and I think that's as good a term as any at the moment. There are flaws to that term, but let's go with that. Um, and there is something at the heart of this movement that is inherently hostile to freedom of speech. And I think it uh, goes back to its origins. If you trace its origins, there's a very good book by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose called Cynical Theories, which traces the origins uh, of this movement back to the early postmodernists, the French postmodernists of the 1960s and 70s, um, 
Lyotan, Foucault and Derrida. Um, and what we have now is actually a corruption of that. It isn't postmodernism, uh, really. It's a corrupted version of it. But what they successfully do in this book is they show how uh, with this focus on power structures in society, particularly if you think of Foucault's notion of power working across society as a grid, they took this idea, but they also took the idea uh, that our understanding of reality uh, is entirely uh, created by the language that we use. They weren't saying that there's no such thing as objective truth, but they're, they're saying that we can never reach it because our perception of reality is completely constructed through language. This is often why uh, people like Camille Parley often talk point out uh, that postmodernists, traditional postmodernists, aren't very good at engaging with the visual arts, for instance, uh, or dance or sculpture or painting because they're not equipped for it because they can only think linguistically and in deconstructive terms. So when you have a situation where language is all powerful, you can see uh, this resonate and the reverberate within the language of contemporary social justice activists. It's why they say things like words are violence. It's why they say things like this kind of discourse normalizes hate. That joke will legitimize uh, uh, hatred against marginalized groups. It's that kind of notion, uh, this faith based position. Um, that uh, language has this kind of incredible power and that people sim are, are like robots that sim simply respond mechanically on cue uh, to language that they hear. Uh, there's an example I give in the book in the British Parliament where Boris Johnson was using this uh, metaphor of the surrender bill. He was describing a bill as the surrender bill. He was using words like uh, traitor or betrayal. And other politicians tried to connect that to the murder of an MP in the UK and said that language like that stokes violence. You've had it recently in the US with people accusing Donald Trump of incitement because he uses uh, phrases that are combative, um, phrases like fighting and, uh, you know, take to the field and these kind of phrases that are incredibly common uh, in, uh, in political discourse. Now, I'm not here to discuss the rights and wrongs of banning Donald Trump. I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think it was a good idea as it happens, even though I'm not a supporter of Trump. But what I but I, what I would say is that the idea that uh, robust and colourful political language can incite violence uh, is actually based on very meagre evidence, uh, and certainly uh, wouldn't meet the Brandenburg test of incitement, uh, which you have in the US to determine whether incitement has occurred. Um, so that's something to consider as well. I'm sure we'll get onto in incitement. But the way I feel that we got here is that. Um, as I say, the present day social justice activists have this belief of the connection of language and power derived from the French postmodernists. Um, and these same activists are often at the forefront of censorship of the arts. And I can trace that, or I, I think I'm right to trace this to the thinkers of the Frankfurt School, people like Herbert Marcuse and Theodore Adorno uh, and Horkheimer, and those people for whom popular culture and entertainment were seen as distractions from the revolutionary uh, project. So popular culture, in other words, in this formulation is a kind of means of social control. And you see echoes of this again in, in uh, modern uh, social justice and intersectional uh, activists and the way that they talk about the importance of representation in, in, in film, theater and fiction. Uh, you've had it recently with the banning of six of Dr. Seuss's books um, because the, their representation is deemed to be problematic. Never mind that he was born in 1904 and ethical standards change over time. I would have thought it'd be easier to simply teach children about that uh, rather than try and uh, erase the books. Uh, on a side point, as a result of that, of course, all of those books have now become bestseller bestsellers on Amazon. And that is, of course, what happens every time you try to censor something, it draws attention to it. It's called the Streisand effect. Um, 
So uh, I, I'm, I, I know that Stephen mentioned at the start that he wanted to talk about the impact on the arts. So I'm not going to say too much about it now, uh, but only to say that I am a big believer in Oscar Wilde's uh, uh, statement that he made in the preface to The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was written in 1890. And he says, there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. And I realise I've been talking for an awful long time now. So I'm going to I do want to hear from from you guys. So. I'm just going to quickly go to my third question and just put it out there more than anything rather than talk about it, which is where do we go from here? And my fear is, I mean, more and more, uh, I fear that we are being polarised and I fear that the free speech debate has become about, uh, firstly, it's being misunderstood as a debate about left versus right. And people on the right are deemed to be the defenders of free speech um, or, or it's seen as a, a ruse in order to mask far right views. Uh, and that is very troubling to me because I, I, I feel quite nervous about the idea that defending free speech, something as honourable as defending free speech, can so often kindle these very dishonourable suspicions. This idea that uh, anyone who is for free speech just doesn't care about minority groups and, and wants people to be as horrible to them as possible. I mean, this is absolutely the opposite of everything I know from working with free speech campaigners. Their concern is that uh, they, well, they understand that the only way that marginalised voices can be heard is in fact through the defense of free speech. That's what all of the civil rights luminaries uh, from the 1960s understood. That's why you had the movement in Berkeley because they understood that women's rights and gay rights and rights for black people could not be advanced unless you have free speech at the start. My concern at the moment is a lot of people on, on my side of the argument, people who will defend free speech have given up on liberal values and given up on persuasion. I've had some criticism of this book that it is too nice, that it is too polite, that it's too uh, amenable to those who have concerns about hateful speech. Well, that's because, firstly, I think they have a point. Hateful speech is unpleasant. And I understand why people's instinct is to get rid of it, to censor it, because it isn't nice. I would rather live in a world where we didn't hear uh, these awful rebarbative notions expressed in the public square. Um, that would be wonderful. But what I don't want is to silence people and force them not to say it. Um, and I think um, are too many people who, who believe in free speech now are, are saying effectively, you will never reach those people. The, the, the social justice movement, they're too entrenched in their ideology. They're never going to change their mind. But what I would say to those people is th these ideologues are in the minority. It's just that they have disproportionate power in higher education and in politics uh, and in schools and in the arts and in media. So, yes, they're extremely powerful. But most people are still open to persuasion. Most people are somewhere in the middle. I've spoken to an awful lot of people who, yes, they do support free speech, but they are nervous about incitement or they're nervous uh, about hateful people expressing hateful views. And that is an understandable perspective. So I wrote a book in an effort to reach out to those people and to persuade them not to insult them, uh, not to further entrench uh, the, the polarised notion of the culture war. That's something I wasn't interested in. And, and, and I fear that in going forward from here, I mean, there's always a place for the barbed, acerbic approach. I very much enjoy uh, reading polemics and, and writers who have that very waspish quality. That can be an awful lot of fun. But I don't think anyone's ever been persuaded by being insulted. And I think ultimately uh, the notion that freedom of speech is the seedbed of all of our freedoms is a compelling argument. And it is something that we can, with patience, uh, persuade everyone of thinking. It's just going to take some time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew, for that uh, very uh, 
uh, incisive introduction to the thrust of your book and the contextualization of your book. Uh, there's, there's an awful lot in here that I, I want to pick up on. Uh, for those of you who perhaps missed our introduction, we're talking about uh, Andrew Doyle's new book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. I uh, began by saying that I thought there was a certain sense in which you could call this book uh, free speech, not what you thought or not what you were expecting. And uh, what I mean by that, Andrew, is a, is a, is a great compliment, and I, I hope this can come out in our conversation here. There's one sense in which it would be easy enough to write a really fiery defense of free speech, you know, preaching to the choir, you know, mocking your opponents through your sheer rhetorical power, trying to coerce people into saying they agreed with you, you know, mocking contradictions in your opponents. Um, but that's just absolutely not what is uh, going on here. This is a a courageous, but also, I would say, a, a gentle book. You are writing in ostentatiously good faith, uh, steel manning, as, as some people say, your opponent's arguments, many of which you think have real moral force, though in the end, you uh, suggest that the ends of those arguments can be better achieved through other means. Um, but in this, and, and this is, is something that I uh, expect we'll return to, and what is present in not only your arguments, but in the way that you make your arguments. Uh, you are affirming the freedom of thought of those who may be skeptical or opposed to freedom of speech and thought. You are, you are yourself refusing coercion and domination through power. And thus you are, you are instantiating the freedom that you seek to defend. It's a very beautiful and important thing uh, you've you've done here, um, so I'm I'm I, I thank you for that, and I want to begin straight out of the gate here with some of the steel manning that you do of the your opponent's uh, arguments. Um, you know, you you admit uh, right out of the gate that it is uh, there is a tendency, or that there is now there are now many people who quote tend to perceive freedom of expression as being in conflict with minority rights and are willing to see it compromised for the sake of a more inclusive society. We know that words can wound. We know that we're capable of hurting each other. We know there are people who have a hard time defending themselves that are disenfranchised, oppressed, weak, um, struggling, abused. Um, can you just uh, tell us, uh, summarize for us why you think those such people can be better defended through robust protections of freedom of speech than through limiting the hateful and terrible things people might say about them. We've seen that in countries where free speech protections are poor, um, the marginalized groups tend to fare extremely badly. Uh, and I think I, I made the point that the civil rights activists knew this. Uh, and, and, and therefore knew that free speech protection were, was important. I think the conflict lies when well, the, the counter argument is that when you have people in power who have all the speech, they have all the platforms and other, other voices are not heard. And that's a legitimate uh, concern. But the answer to that is not to silence more of the powerful people. It is to, to hear other voices, open up more uh, means of discourse and dialogue. And that's, that's the way to do it. And unless we can have these ideas out in the open, uh, unless we can speak freely to each other uh, and listen to each other, 
uh, then we'll never reach any, we'll never make any kind of progress, largely because um, the, the very act of reasoning, of thinking things through, is a collaborative endeavour. It's about the way that we interact with each other and hear each other and talk to each other. And that's why we we, we cannot get any further without this. Um, so I think it's just a I think it's just a false approach, which is th this idea that, you know, we need to essentially pull people uh, down if there are those who are silenced. No, we, we need to actually elevate those those voices that are silenced, not the other way around. I don't otherwise you're in that kind of crabs in a bucket situation. Thank you. There, there's a, let me say, let me ask you whether you think this is a solid line of reasoning. There's a real sense in which, uh, of course, we can make many moral arguments in defense of free speech and should, but there is a, there is a profound sense. I was reading uh, before an interview, reading uh, Stephen Pinker's uh, The Blank Slate recently, and it really came to me that there is a, there is a profound sense in which freedom of thought is a kind of evolutionary adaptation. It is the means by which we situate ourselves in relation to the, to the world and each other, the means which we take in and process uh, the data that we receive. In a certain sense, it's, it's, uh, it's analogous to sight. And it's actually quite interesting that in the history of philosophy, for example, going back to Aristotle, uh, sight and uh, seeing or vision or thinking are, are often qu closely, uh, closely compared. Um, but the point I'm making is that you would, you would no sooner think you were at, a dis you were at an advantage by you know, closing your eyes uh, when you were walking into traffic than you would uh, in thinking that you, if, by limiting your ability to think or take in data about the world, that you were somehow better off. I mean, how would the Greeks have fared if they had had a prohibition against uh, warnings of, warnings against, if they'd had a prohibition of warnings against threats to the state. So when the Persians were coming, if it had been you know, forbidden to say, listen, bad things are coming down the pipe, we should prepare. Uh, you can imagine what might, might have happened there. Imagine if it were forbidden to say that, you know, you, to shout at someone when they were about to walk into traffic. We've certainly seen with COVID, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the serious problems. If data and uh, free discourse is suppressed in our ability to handle this uh, horrific pandemic. Now, those are all physical examples, but I'm using them because it seems to me the principle very much holds with deeper or more complicated matters that suppression of free thought and of speech, which is the only means, perhaps not the only, but the primary means, I mean, we can, perhaps we can mime things, which is a kind of visual speech or, or something, but ultimately, Freedom of speech is the means by which we have we, we means we have to portray and describe and share our thoughts with 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 each other, so that fundamentally, you know, one can though I think one can make this on moral moral grounds. I think it's helpful to situate this in terms of you know the very most basic things like you know do you or do you not want to know that the car is coming down the road? Do you or do you not want? To, I mean the the the, the at the, at the most fundamental level, freedom of speech is the means by which we can share the data, the understanding that we have with each other so that those others and ourselves can have the benefit of that. Absolutely. And to, to give an, the example that I, I briefly touched on, which is that of uh, gender critical feminism, there is a groundswell of, of particularly feminists and uh, um, people who are concerned about women's rights, uh, that there is a perceived conflict um, with a gender self-identification. Now, uh, Twitter and social media have done an awful 
a, a good job of, of banning anyone who expresses that point of view. YouTube has removed videos of anyone who's expressed that point of view. Do you really want, not want to know and address and understand that there is this deep level of consternation in society over this issue about which we have not alla been allowed to have the discussion? Uh, you know, I've spoken to people, even people in pol politics, uh, even people in the media who say they will not touch this subject. They will not speak about it because to do so opens them up to incredible abuse and threats online. And I understand why they would self-censor under those circumstances. However, if you were serious about trans rights or your, or your belief in gender self-identification, you would want to have these conversations because no progress is ever made without persuasion. I mean, I go back to the gay rights movement as a very good example. Uh, gay rights, equal marriage, all of the rest of it was not achieved by locking people up by for using the wrong terminology, what would be the equivalent now to misgendering someone. People in the UK are frequently investigated by the police and sometimes arrested and put in prison for misgendering. Um, there's one famous case here, one woman spent seven hours in a cell for misgendering someone on Twitter. Um, so that isn't going to persuade someone. Uh, it's never ever gonna happen. And I, I do fear, it's what I touched on at the end, I do fear that people have simply given up on the notion that we can persuade because they just don't want to hear the un unpleasant truths. Uh, you mentioned the example of uh, uh, shouting at someone who's walking into traffic. We, we just don't want to hear it, so we shut it out instead. Actually, it's much better. I mean, there's a reason why that cliche, uh, sunlight being the best disinfectant, uh, is a cliche. It's, it's, be it's because it makes complete sense. Um, I do fear that this is uh, more and more happening. Uh, and I do think that it is tied to this, this social justice ideology that has a real problem with truth, actually, uh, and, and, and believes in advancing a kind of pseudo-reality where they can say, for instance, if you take the tenets of critical race theory, everything about our culture is underpinned by white supremacy. Every human interaction is undergirded by racism. As Robin DiAngelo says in her book, White Fragility, you don't go into a situation and say, well, was this situation racist? You say, how did racism manifest itself in this situation? So this and all whenever they say, for instance, there have been people in the UK who have said that Oxford and Cambridge University are systemically institutionally racist. When you show data and research that proves that the opposite is the case, and in fact, that these are some of the least racist places on Earth, uh, that data is disregarded. And people will say, yes, but what about my lived experience, which is what we used to call anecdotal evidence. There's a reason we used to disregard anecdotal evidence, not to suggest that people's experiences aren't valid and that we can't learn from them, uh, but that you don't extrapolate from that and make broad conclusions about an institution or society on the basis of one person's story. What you do is you, you look at data. I mentioned the thing in a footnote in the, um, in the book about um, a study of higher education in the UK, which found conclusively that instances of racism uh, that were reported were vanishingly rare. And the, the headline of that article should have been, this is great news. We've, we've made so much progress uh, to, to, to virtually eliminate racism from universities. The headline, in fact, said it was something like uh, the, the shocking extent of racism on our campuses. It was the opposite of the truth. And, and that really worries me because I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist or that you shouldn't stamp it out where you find it, or indeed that institutional racism can't exist. We saw that, well, with Jim Crow is a good example of a system of racism. Um, but to, to start from the, uh, the premise that an institution is systemically racist and then work backwards 
uh, that you're starting with your conclusion, working backwards. That's not the way to do it. It's a proposition that requires interrogation. But if you don't believe in truth anymore, then it doesn't matter. If you're just an ideologue, if you're just an activist, the truth really doesn't matter. And uh, this kind of perversion of postmodernism is offering a, 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 a false reality. And this is also why these activists have no trouble telling you what you secretly think, because actually it doesn't really matter what you what you argue or what you think. It's what they've decided uh, they would like to believe you think. This is, um, uh, and, and, and I think this is connected uh, to the idea of speech, because I feel that through more speech, you would arrive at the truth. You know, Milton mentions this in Areopagitica. He talks about the idea of uh, let truth and falsehood. He imagines it as a battle, let truth and falsehood grapple, uh, because whoever knew uh, uh, truth come out worse in that situation, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, you know, um, that that is true. Once we allow these debates to be aired and discussed, we do edge nearer to the truth, even if the truth is this ever-receding horizon that we can't actually acquire, we do get nearer to it. But if you are just uh, wanting to advance a false reality and work on that basis, then you have no interest in truth to begin with. There does seem, I think you're completely right to say that there is a profound uh, philosophical assumption present in the view that uh, coercion is enough. I mean, essentially it is to say that their, their you know, reality is a construct and if I have enough power, then I can kind of remake it however I want. So, you know, persuasion is, 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 is unnecessary because there's no reality behind that we are trying to get at by the discussions that we are having and tried to understand that. Instead, you know, it's a, when reality is a kind of reviewed as a construct, one falls into thinking that all I need is enough power to remake the world according to the, uh, the way I want, I want it to be. Um, but if in fact, um, you know, reality is not a construct and that what matters is that we come to understand ourselves as, as best as we can. And you describe, I think wonderfully in the book, you know, the ever seeding horizon or the way you put it about truth. Like it's not as though we're ever completely getting it. We're, we're just, we're trying to constantly to understand the world in all of its complexity and reality and all of its complexity and depth and beauty and difficulty as we possibly can. And we need all the help we can get to do that. And, um, and so what under, what is, what is underlying what I was trying to get at in my, uh, words about your book a minute ago is, is really when you dig into the, the mechanics of how we come to see things as human beings, you, you, you end up having to, think very seriously about what that moment is that brings someone to see something they didn't see. So let's, let's take this out of a kind of political arena for, or, or, you know, kind of highly uh, charged environment for a second and just admit that they, like there are times when we actually do see things that other people don't see that are true. Like there are times when, you know, you know, parents with children or friends with others that you, you actually, you actually see that, someone does not have as full of an understanding of something as, 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 as they might. Um, and perhaps they're that's causing them pain or trouble or difficulty because they are in that sense, maladapted to the complexity of reality through their only partial understanding. But the, 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 the place I'm going with this is that if you, if you sincerely want them to understand things better, well, how do you go about that? Uh, because, you know, I mean, I had the pleasure of having spending time with, um, in, a, in an interview with uh, Yunmi Park, the great uh, North Korean defector and, and one of my personal heroes. And, you know, Yunmi's book is, is a very uh, 
deeply moving account of how the 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 propaganda machine of the state in North Korea is able to make people believe things. I mean, they believe all kinds of things that are simply not true. We know they're not true. Um, but I, what I want to argue is that though through coercion, you may be able to make someone believe something, you know, think that it is so, none of that has any bearing either on whether it is so or on whether they have seen things to be true or not. It's just a kind of solipsistic world in which they think they know what things are true when they are, are not. I mean, you can be persuaded that you know the earth is, is flat, uh, but that, none of that has any, any effect on whether the earth is flat, nor have you actually come to see things as true. So what I'm trying to get at here is the, the non-coercive way in which human beings come to see things as actually true true. So if you want someone to come to understand something that, that you think is true, um, you, 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 you need to present this in such a way as their own lights can bring them to see that is true. So for example, let's just take an easy example of say mathematics. You know, you can believe, you can believe in a mechanical way that two plus two equals four and you've been taught it and, you, and, it, and it works. So you just keep applying the principle. That, isn't, that is completely separate of actually seeing that when you have two and two, it makes four. And now you understand the necessity of the truth that you uh, that you now under that you that you previously had at the level of a kind of belief. You now understand it in the in its kind of necessary internal intrinsic logic. And the reason this is so important is because if we don't approach people like that, no matter how coercive, how powerful, how much we threaten them, we are not doing anything to actually move their minds. So you, you say in the book, for example, that you know, forced conversions are not conversions. I mean, I can, I can say that I have converted to this view or that view or this religion or that view, but none of that means I have actually inwardly in my mind converted. And so I'm wondering if you can say uh, a few words about, um, about the, the, the manner in which uh, human beings come to see things as true. Yeah. I. I think if you don't believe that the, 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 the wisest course of action is to bring people to a point of realization through their own thought processes, it means that you don't value human beings, actually. You just value uh, a, a scenario by which you can maintain control. And that's where you get this co coercion. And, 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 and more to the point, you do end up in a, a situation more often than not. I mean, it is absolutely true, as you say, that people can be convinced of falsehoods um, but more often than not, you have the, the, the forced conversion notion where people are effectively performing the truth that they have been told to perform. And this is something that despots have always done is to uh, one of the ways that you can completely dehumanize and, and, and uh, disintegrate someone's individuality, someone's very soul is by forcing them to utter things that they know not to be true. That, in a sense, is even more self-destructive, I believe, uh, than being um, persuaded of falsehood, uh, where you are actually speaking untruths knowingly. Um, and of course, the, the, the obvious example is 1984. That's what happens by the end of 1984 is that uh, um, Winston ends up in a situation where he is uh, almost unconsciously tracing the phrase two plus two equals five in the dust on the table. And that is the, the, the point at which and we don't know whether that is performative or, he, or his, his mind has been so broken down and decimated by his torture uh, that he is now uh, perceiving the world in the false way 
that the party want him to. But it, it is so uh, utterly dehumanizing and so disregarding of humanity and the sanctity of human life um, and, or, and the, the notion of human intellectual autonomy um, that I can never uh, get on board with that. I will never be of the view that it is sometimes better for people uh, to be convinced of a noble untruth. I, I, I won't get on board with that. I think we can never give up because that is all we are. If we cannot think, we don't exist. And that would trouble me. I I'd wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying, Andrew. Uh, this is right at the heart of what it means to be human. And, and what, what, what is so sad in the effort to limit speech through coercive power rather than through argument, for example, is that it, it instantiates the violence that it is aiming to prevent. Uh, you write in your book uh, wonderfully, um, I believe this is on page 39, for those of you who have not yet acquired this wonderful slender tome, um, you say to, uh, to make the leap from natural revulsion, uh, you say something we, we all experience at certain times, to, to actively silencing the views with which we agree and we disagree, and now I quote, is to surrender to the authoritarian tendency. By doing so, we degrade ourselves by subordinating our reason to baser instincts. So the limiting of the violent limiting of speech is itself to give over to the violence that at least those who are well-intentioned in doing so wish to prevent. Anything you'd like to comment on in that regard? I think just the, the latter point that you made about uh, how sometimes this, this imposition of values is well-intentioned, that to me is particularly chilling. Um, but we can see how this, these things work in a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I'm, I'm now seeing it every day. Um, to give an example from the, the ACLU putting out a threat, which has now basically become a, an intersectional activist group and has completely reneged on the, uh, the obligation to defend free speech. But, but uh, the thread that they put out saying, there are no biological differences between men and women, and there is no uh, advantage to being biologically male in women's sports. And they called these facts, uh, myth busters, they called it, and they labeled it fact one, fact two, but they were the opposite of facts. And it's just this thing of saying the reverse of the truth in such a bold, assertive way. Um, it's called gaslighting. In fact, that's the, the phrase that the, uh, the, the social justice left invented for this very thing that they're so good at. Um, and of course, there's public pressure there. Now, there are a lot of people who are convinced of the truth of, of that Twitter thread. Uh, so there's that. There's also an awful lot of people who will be willing to accept uh, the truth of that because they don't want to face the consequences of not because they've seen how vicious uh, and bullying and unforgiving uh, the, the the people who who peddle those untruths are. And then there are those who are who uh, don't believe it but are too afraid to uh, to to object. And and this is just so common now. Um, the the other example, obviously, J.K. Rowling, I've mentioned because. Just, just reiterating the idea that she's a hateful monster, even though she's never said anything hateful. Um, it, you know, it's a problem for me. I, I will always get into arguments with people and say, just quote me something hateful or transphobic she said, and they never can. And you would think under those circumstances, they would reflect and say, well, maybe I'm wrong, but they're so caught up in the, in, in, in the pseudo reality uh, that they, there's no way out for them. And that, 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 it really troubles me that a lot of this is well-intentioned because these people do believe they're on the side of the angels and that they do believe that silencing speech is a way to uh, purge society of evil forces, which they see in every shadow, incidentally. I mean, they've also, one of the other myths that they bought into 
is that we, we live in a society that is more uh, fascistic uh, and evil and bigoted than ever before. Actually, again, the reverse is true. Not only uh, are the UK and the US some of the most tolerant countries in the world, they're some of the most tolerant countries that have ever existed. Uh, so this, this, this complete negation of reality is, is something that troubles me. Yeah, there, there, there is a, um, there's a, there's a, there's a hu huge amount of what you're saying there. I want to uh, uh, read a, a quotation from your book. Um, and then I, very soon, I want to get to some questions because we've got a pile of magnificent questions coming in here. Um, but before I get to that quotation, I just quickly, Andrew, one of the points you make in your book is that, you know, many, there are, there are, what are the ch challenges to defending uh, this elemental, as you call it, principle, is that, you know, there are many people who say terrible things, uh, things that, that we would never say and that we would ourselves openly condemn. Uh, and yet this, this, this disincentivizes others from, and even indeed ourselves, from defending the principle because you can't help but feel as though somehow if you defend free speech, you are, you are somehow you know, defending or aligning yourself or somehow implicitly condoning horrific things that people have said. But you, know, you, you make the, the point beautifully in the book that we have to be able to separate um, the principle from the, uh, the, the right that is this fundamental elemental right from the things that people will do with it, and uh, and it and it needs to be said that there is there is no good thing that could not be tarnished by you know the embrace or affiliation of people who are morally repugnant to us. I mean, literally nothing. I mean, feeding the hungry or protecting people from abuse or protecting people from racism or 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 defending the rights of the most vulnerable. You know, there are bad people who could who could as it were, tarnish those very things. But would we then say, well, we shouldn't be into that anymore because, you know, somehow th these people we disagree who are, who are getting in on this, on this, uh, uh, behind this principle? Well, of course not. And so at the heart of the, the writing of your book, at, at the, I take it at the impetus to write the book, is the conviction that the principles must be understood and defended independent of, and, and vitally so, independent of, of, uh, what reputation the activities of those who engage in them have. That's absolutely right. I think uh, I say in the book that I, I think if you are willing to surrender your principles just simply because someone that you dislike adopts the same principles, then those principles can only ever set, be said to have been tenuously held. Uh, I, I would urge anyone who's, I mean, we've all seen some sort of hate-fueled types uh, going on about free speech and the importance of free speech, inevitably they will, because their speech uh, is going to be um, unpopular, shall we say. It's going to be uh, controversial, and controversial speech is always, uh, you know, causes problems. So, of course, they would, uh, at least on the, at least ostensibly uh, defend free speech, even if they don't uh, agree with it. You hear white nationalists attempting to defend free speech because they want they want to their right to uh, to say the hateful things that they say. By the way, an awful lot of white nationalists don't actually believe in free speech, and you hear that you, they often get caught in unguarded moments, explicitly admitting that they don't actually believe in free speech. You know, if they, if they went to power, I don't imagine that free speech would be their priority. Uh, it's never been the case with the far right. Um, but why would you, I would ask anyone who is, who is nervous about, they see someone they don't like, a popular figure who's, who's very unpopular, defending the notion of free speech. If you are, are going to surrender the principle yourself then and say, well, now I no longer agree with it, you are gifting that person that you hate 
an incredible degree of power. You're effectively saying that person that I really despise, uh, I've just said, I've just allowed to dictate what I will or will not think. So just from a position of pure self-interest, why would you do that? Why would you elevate that person to a level they don't deserve? Um, hold on to your principles, irrespective of who else holds them, because the principle has to be divided from the person. Yes, and furthermore, the when we are confident that in fact we are seeing a truth, we should be all the more enthusiastic or willing and keen to help others understand that truth following the principle that you know the, the more clearly you see the world the, uh, the more clearly you see the world the better off you are and thus we have actually a duty to engage with those with whom we think are, are wrong you know courteously and to the best of our ability uh in fact it's a kind of humanistic obligation we have uh, to share what we know with each other uh, I, on the topic of minorities i want to read this marvelous passage um in on page 33 andrew you write that True progressives understand that without freedom of speech and by extension, freedom of thought and conscience, nothing else can be achieved. The civil rights luminaries of the 20th century who fought for black emancipation, gay rights and women's suffrage, all recognized that without freedom of speech, theirs was a lost cause. They embodied the memorable words of Benjamin Cardozo, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1932 to 1938 who described freedom of expression as, quote, the matrix, the indispensable condition of nearly every other form of freedom. Before we turn to audience questions, would you like to comment on that um, uh, magnificent uh, quote from uh, Justice Cardozo? I think it gets to the heart of it. That, um, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to, I was working on another book uh, a before I started writing this one about the, the, the culture wars and the situation we currently find ourselves in. And I realized that actually at the heart of it, free speech uh, is is uh, comes first and foremost, because without it, as I've argued, uh, we don't have any of those other uh, those other freedoms. And and that this is actually something that is 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 is, is truly for everyone. Uh, this is a principle that should not be tribalistic, should not fall along politically partisan lines. And it really troubles me that it does. I I I I make the point that when I was growing up, uh, it was often the right. It was right-leaning tabloid newspapers who were calling for films to be banned, movies to be banned, uh, books, etc. And now it's coming from the uh, the identitarian left, and um, uh, you know publications like the Guardian or the New York Times. Those are those are the voices that you'll now hear calling for censorship. And I think we need to struggle out of this partisan perspective of freedom of speech. Look to what the, those civil rights luminaries achieved really consider why they thought freedom of speech was so important, even when it came to their enemy's speech, um, why we want to set precedents that, and, and the obvious answer is that if we if we attack uh, freedom of speech um, and uh, allow it to be eroded, then that will come back and bite us eventually as well. So there's an awful lot of uh, just, just self-interest involved in this argument. But yeah, I just want, above all, I want us to transcend uh, this notion of, that free speech is tied to a particular political ideology because I don't believe it is. I'm going to turn now, Andrew, with, to uh, uh, some of our audience questions. Thank you all so very much for not only joining us, but for uh, 
submitting these really lively and penetrating uh, comments. I'm sorry we won't be able to get to them all, but uh, we are going to get through several of them. Starting right off, I'm going to refer to you all in the comment section on first names, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, Mark writes, thank you for these fascinating remarks. You raise a variety of important points, some of which are cultural in nature, whereas others address the legal context for free speech. How do you think we should disentangle these as a society? It seems to me that many of the examples of, quote, cancel culture, end quote, exist outside of the legal arena and instead are choices made by companies and individuals. To what extent are those individual and corporate actions themselves freedom of expression by those parties? That's a really good question. I think it's very important to effectively disentangle the cultural and the legal. And the reason I say that is because there is a thing called the social contract, which is that we all uh, reach a kind of collective agreement on how best to, on, on which forms of expression are acceptable, say in the workplace or in public spaces or that kind of thing. I don't think there's anything controversial about that. And I don't think any, anyone's being censored. Um, this was, of course, what a lot of the political correctness movement of the 80s and the 90s was about. It was a kind of fumbling towards uh, a broadly agreed consensus on the on 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 what speech is considered acceptable and not. In other words, decorum. In other words, politeness. And I'm a big fan of uh, decorum, actually, because I think that's the only way that dialogue can can occur. Uh, but I think you need to separate that. And of course, there were overzealous people. There always are uh, who took things too far and and. Um, and it, you know, that's why I say it's been a very messy, it, the, the ever evolving social contract is always a, a very messy business. But there has to be a clear distinction between that and legal prescriptions against speech, because ultimately, although I'm a big believer in civility, people should have the legal right to incivility. Um, now, if someone uh, in a public space is rude to me, throws insults, then I also have my freedom of speech to retort, to mock, or to ignore and to walk away. Uh, I feel that it would be uh, a violation, however, of that person's rights for me to call the police and, and have that person arrested. That's the distinction that I would like to clearly to draw. Um, I don't agree with incivility. I don't think it's a good thing, uh, but I think people should be free to do that within the law. Uh, and once they are not, then that I, that I think is a, a genuine threat to free speech. So. Does that make sense? I'm, tr I'm trying to draw a distinction between those two things uh, and, and, and emphasizing that you can disapprove of certain forms of speech without having to see someone arrested for them. Let's let's let me ask a couple of follow ups to that, because um, we have we have, for example, another question about the the tech oligopolies, as I think you called them. Um, let's start there. What do you think those who would who wish to defend the principle of freedom of speech uh, can do, or what should the their? Uh, how do you see the problem uh, of these uh, free agents, corporations, or individuals? Uh, well, all of them owned by private individuals, um, exerting such power of our, of our civil discourse. How can that problem be tackled without betraying the very principle? Well, there are a number of potential solutions. I don't. I don't profess to be an expert on what could be done here. Uh, one thing I proposed before, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. Well, I'm, I'm almost certainly wrong about an awful lot of things, but let's just let's just run with it. If we believe that um, that these companies ought to have legal protections to evade um, criminal re or responsibility for material that appears on their site, in other words, uh, uh, a legal defense that says they are, in fact, platforms, not publishers. 
Uh, could the legislation simply not be amended so that it only applies to illegal content? In other words, that it no longer applies to merely offensive content or, or, or content uh, that the, um, you know, the kids at Silicon Valley don't agree with. And maybe that could be uh, actually implemented uh, within the framework of the legislation, potentially, rather than outright appealing it. You know, if you outright repealed Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, they would censor everything because they would be absolutely terrified of being responsible or sued for anything that appeared on the platform. It would actually make matters worse. But perhaps a modification of the legislation might be a way to do it. Uh, the other uh, broader uh, solution is to get off social media. I think we've, <laughs> we've tested it now. It does, I don't think it really works in terms of uh, uh, advancing the conversation any further. Um, I think it, you know, it's, a, it's a playground. It's a place for a frivolity. You know, I, I obviously have a satirical character that I have online and there's, that's what it's for. It's, you know, I think I, sometimes I do reach, uh, enter into a discussion online and it goes somewhere productive. But those are very few and far between, you know, I mean, we're talking maybe less than 10% of the time. So I think ultimately, when it comes to meaningful dialogue, uh, we need to develop other forums for that. And that will be uh, public debates, uh, universities, new institutions like your own, you know, not uh, at the back and forth of Twitter, which I, I just don't, I've lost all faith in it, personally. I don't know how helpful that is. That's probably just me being very pessimistic. Well, I think this does get to the problem the, that uh, Mark was asking about uh, uh, culture, because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is many of the cancellations that take place or the culture of fear of intimidation, it is, in fact, a culture. It's, it's, it's not, at least in many cases, uh, backed up by any course of power of the law. Of course, you've given some examples, uh, very frightening ones in your talk about the way in which the law can be weaponized against the freedom of conscience and speech and indeed thought of free individuals. But I think we, and that is, of course, a matter of uh, immense importance that your book addresses, but we would be doing a serious disservice to the extent of the problem if we were not to begin with the acknowledgement that very often, the mechanisms of oppression are not uh, you know, legal coercion. Uh, they're, they're, they're cancellation or bullying or, or you know, so on and so forth. And, and what that means is that the law is not actually the, the problem, um, at least insofar as permitting speech is what we want. If the law is permitting that, then the law is itself not the problem. In fact, what it points to is that the fact that there are other drivers or contexts or incentives or disincentives that are extra legal. And so what, what I want to ask you is really, it's a very, I think it's, it's a very profound problem because, you know, the, the, the things that, the thing that's going on in your book, Andrew, the, the cast of mind, the willingness to steel man the arguments of the other person, the, the humility to which you say, as you just, which you just demonstrated, frankly, by saying, I'm, you know, I'm, off, I'm, probably, I'm certainly wrong about an, an awful lot of things. That, that humility is, is an absolutely necessary virtue to discover what you do not know. That's, that's that you can't learn what you do not know if you're not open to seeing it. If you don't think there's anything you do not know, then you can't be open to seeing it. And so 
my question is, you know, though, of course, I'm a very you know, strong believer in the First Amendment of the American Constitution and of, of similar protections in other countries for all the reasons you say, insofar as those still exist, and yet we have this growing problem, I think we have to acknowledge that the, the cultivation of a culture of a certain kind of humility, a certain kind of thanks for telling me that I didn't know what I didn't see, but, but, but correspondingly modes of engaging with others that are charitable and, and kind and, have, and, and are, are actually aiming to help someone see something. You know, if you if you call someone nasty names and approach them in violence, uh, you know, with a coercive you know gun in hand, you're very unlikely to get a good reception. And so, I'm wondering if you have, you know, by contrast, if you approach someone in genuine spirit of human shared good, and and humility about what you don't know, uh, then the outcome may be very one hopes very different. So my my question is, what are your reflections about the forms of life and culture? whether of young children in parenting and, and, and education or uh, at later ages that facilitate or support the kind of free and open relation to the world and the thoughts of others. Yeah, well, there's, there's two things there I think that are very important. Firstly, you're right to acknowledge the reality of cancel culture and the way it is driven by social media is not something that you can just wish away or or um or end by simply removing yourself from the the sphere of social media but i think what you're we're hoping or to move towards is a general attitudinal shift uh the problem isn't those actually the bullies and the people who uh, attempt to have people cancelled the problem is those in authority capitulating to those people um it wouldn't matter if 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 companies simply ignored them or, or refuse to act on it. I've always, I, I did a thread on Twitter a while ago where I suggested a, a series of pledges that every company could take. And at the top of this was, we will never fire anyone or discipline anyone on the basis of complaints received online uh, or, or dog piles online or anything like that. And I think, it, you know, we saw this, the, the, you know, when, whenever someone just, it just takes a couple of tweets to major companies about someone and they'll just fire them. They just cut them loose because they're afraid of the negative publicity. We have to somehow change the culture so that when people complain in this way, the companies say, so what? It's not it's not your business and, and don't act upon it. It rarely happens though. But however, in the few instances where it does happen, where the companies don't act on it and refuse to do so and people refuse to apologize and refuse to capitulate, the, the mob loses its power straight away. It, it just doesn't work. Um, so that's what we should be aiming towards. How you affect that kind of broad attitudinal shift, I have absolutely no idea. However, the, the other part of your question, which I think is important, is related to this, which is I think it is about education. You know, I used to be a teacher. I used to, um, you know, I, I used to teach, in fact, a course on critical thinking. Um, I think, um, you know, I have endless optimism for young people. You know, they, 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 they will not, just naturally accept this very intolerant world that we've created for them. Um, and, and it is important, I think, and, and in fact, egalitarian for everyone to learn uh, how to argue, you know? Uh, and it sounds quite prescriptive. I'm saying, oh, there are rules to argument, but actually just, just if you want to participate in, in the debate and, and your first thought is to throw an insult, to commit the ad hominem attack, um, 
you actually exclude yourself from the debate because that other person won't listen to you. So I think if people just learned the basics, you know, I'm so surprised. Most of the opinion columns I now read in the national press, they're always doing the same thing. They're always guessing the motives of the people they criticize. They're always uh, throwing cheap insults at the other person. So there can never be any hope of a dialogue. And, and and I'm sorry, but under those circumstances, it means that you simply cannot argue. You're not capable of argumentation. I do not believe you should argue with someone who's incapable of argumentation. I think you should walk away. It's pointless. Um, and, and But I think having said that, have faith in the fact that that doesn't apply to everyone. You know, that there's a lot of people out there who are willing to have open discussions. And I think if educationally, if we can just in, in establish in, in our teaching practice if, if children just left school realizing that once they throw insults, they've lost, they've, they've, they've withdrawn themselves from the argument, then this world would be an infinitely better place, wouldn't it? Yes. And I think there's, I do think there's a psychological uh, element to this, which is that if you, if you don't think it's okay to be wrong, you know, I don't know if you're raised in such a way as to, to be punished when you make a mistake or something, um, by contrast with, you know, being introduced to the world in a way that it's okay to be wrong. It's not zero sum. In fact, it may be good to be wrong because, you know, then you realize that you were wrong and you become righter than you were. Uh, it does seem to me there's a profound psychological element to this that, that we all have a real responsibility to take seriously, you know, how we, how we affirm the possibilities of being wrong such that it's okay to be and, and come to be right. Oh, I think that's so important is this idea that this is why social media doesn't work for debates because exactly. your ego is damaged when you're proven wrong, right? And so therefore uh, the entire debate on social media is performative. It's about winning to elevate your own status, not about getting nearer to the truth. And that's the, that's the problem with it. And I think, absolutely, I think if we could cultivate a society in which when you are proven wrong, you are grateful for it that, that, because you should be. It, it, it's, it's because it means you're close to the, to the truth. Jordan Peterson writes about this in his book, 12 Rules for Life. He talks about that how it's actually quite painful to be proven wrong and to learn new things, things that challenge your existing worldview. I can't remember exactly how he describes it, but it's like a shock of awakening. I think that's the phrase he uses. It's, it's something that it hurts, you know? I've, I've seen studies where people, where it's, it's, it's reported that when someone disagrees with us on politics, a lot of people take that as a physical, personal slight. They take it personally. They feel like it's an insult. Actually, it's, it's the opposite. It means that I respect you enough to disagree with your perspective and, 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 and I want to talk to you about it. But more than anything, it's that humility is that if we could just teach ourselves, however hard it is, and I understand it, I do. I, you know, I don't like, you know, my ego suffers if I'm humiliated and I've said something that's incorrect. But, but I like to think that I've trained myself to be able to, to say, thank you. Thank you for proving me wrong. And now... I, I'm a better person. I'm, I'm closer to the truth than I was. It's a positive sure, thing, I, not I a negative. This is right at the heart of things. Um, moving on to another few questions. Um, Harvey asks, isn't the fact that speech does have power one of the most potent reasons for protecting rather than limiting it? If speech lacked the ability to inspire action, then it would be impotent and not worth either protecting or suppressing. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I don't know what more to say about that because I think that hits a nail on the head. It's, it's, uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you want to add something, Stephen. I just, um, I just agree. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, uh, just, I'm just going to, um, move on to, uh, some other questions here. Um, 
uh, though, uh, of course, I think that is uh, is is true. Here we are. Um, a question from a certain a Christopher asks, "What is your advice for a student raised by highly progressive parents and living in a woke city at a woke university?" My boomer parents live off of legacy media and think I'm fear-mongering. My peers are actively woke. What action should I take? Don't go to university, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I, look, I don't know. Or, or go, or, you know, get a degree from Ralston College. I think ultimately the, there is a problem that a lot of people go to these universities uh, that have become so captured by this ideology and they leave knowing less than they begun. Or they, or they, or they end up uh, coming out being totally ill-equipped to deal with any of the realities of, of the world, uh, because they've been trained in this pseudo reality and not actual reality. So, um, no, I mean, look, I haven't given up quite on the universities yet. I, I vacillate back and forth on this. I'm not sure what I know. We've discussed this before. I'm, I'm not sure where I stand. I think the future is probably in new institutions like Ralston College, who can provide a, a classical education, a proper education, and encourage people to think. Um, that will be important. Um, but I don't, uh, it, it might be the case that the universities are a lost cause at the moment. I think my true advice would be be a bit braver. You know, when you're surrounded by the woke, as we call them, when, when, when that's everywhere. I mean, look, I'm from the, my background is in stand-up comedy and the arts and this, my industry is, is overwhelmingly uh, woke. And to, to, to speak out against it makes you, makes yourself a bit of a pariah. You know, there's not many comedians who, who like me all that much because of my the, the ob object of my satire and 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 the things that I write about. But I think if everyone was just a bit braver and just said what they thought, you would firstly discover that there's more of us than you think, and actually that the majority of people are extremely skeptical about this movement. It's just that they have the power, and let's face it, they intimidate people into silence. That is the secret of their success. I mean, the very fact that you're asking the question is is proof of the of the point that they are successful in their intimidatory tactics. Well, actually. I think argue back, be loud, be, you know, be, be open about what you think and don't let them call you a Nazi for it or whatever else ridiculous um, epithet they wish to apply. And, and um, you know, and, and it will be tough for the short term. I think um, you do, you know, I've lost an awful lot of friends for, for speaking truth. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I could have just carried on. I could have just mimicked what they thought uh, but uh, but you know there's a lot of people who are doing that i get an awful lot of messages from other comedians or writers saying i really like what you're doing i can't share it you know but i really you know and i wish i could say the things you say and um but that gives me courage in a way because i i, I think well there's a lot of people out there there's more of us than you think and um yeah i think um standing up against it is the only way it's going to go away the idea that if you just ignore it it's it, you it if you ignore it it will win so <laughs> I think that's that's stand up against it. Really, at the end of the day, the very substance of our own lives is at stake in this because you either choose at every juncture that you will you are you have to sort of choose between whether you're going to be fundamentally externally guided what you call what uh, I think it was Orwell called you know gramophone people. You're just going to put on whatever record others are playing, uh, but at, you know that comes at the immense cost of abandoning the integrity of your own individuality, your own it's subjectivity. So, it's so self-destructive to lie, ultimately. It hurts you more than anyone else. So yeah. it's, it's you know, in your own self-interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you really are, you really are uh, uh, inverting the structure of your very personhood when you do that. 
Um, another question is, um, isn't the most potent justification for freedom of speech the fact that if we suppress hate speech, we lose the ability to discern who the real haters are? When we do this, we make society and all of us less secure. If we know who and where the haters are, we know on whom we should not turn our backs. Why is this argument never made? I think it is made. I, I think I make it in the book. Um, I, I've, I've seen it made elsewhere. I think uh, it, it's even more broad than that. I mean, certainly it's good to be able to identify uh, if, if someone has racist views and they express them, then you know that person's a racist. Then I know I don't want that person within my circle of friends or in my, you know, uh, you know it's, but more than that, it means that the, the potential to challenge their views exists. If we don't know who they are and what they're saying, that potential has been destroyed. Now, I'm not the sort of person who would have the patience or the skill to to talk someone like that uh, out of their viewpoints, but there are people who do it. I mentioned the example of Daryl Davis in the book because he's that the musician who has de-radicalized members of the KKK. I don't even know how you would begin uh, to do that, but he he does, and he's done it many times. And it and it, it's I, I have so much admiration for him, um, and that to me is the ideal that, that that by allowing people to speak, it opens up the possibility that they can change and become better people because people can challenge them. If you don't, they just sit in their little shadows on the internet and, and fester and elaborate and expand, uh, frankly. But more than that, I think just if people were truthful about what they thought generally, think about politics, you know, think about how much time you spend trying to gauge what the politician thinks because they're following the party line or won't express what they actually believe. There's a phrase for this, preference falsification. The idea of preference falsification is that you uh, you merely express the view that you believe will be well mo best received, will be most popular, not what you actually think. And, um, you know, if, 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 if all our politicians just said what they actually thought, you would know who you were voting for. And, you, you know, it would, be, it would be just a much better society. It sounds a bit banal, doesn't it? Just to say that, wouldn't it be great if everyone told the truth? But my God, it would. Well, this uh, this raises this leads to two particular questions here. One I'm having a hard time finding, but the spirit of the question was, um, of course, we should have laws that protect freedom of speech. But do you believe that the free exchange of ideas always leads to the truth? What is the relation this uh, woman asked between free speech and, let's say, higher or more stable truth? Uh, I, I believe it's our most likely avenue to the truth. I, I don't think there's any guarantee. And I certainly know that uh, uh, e even with free expression, it is perfectly possible to reach false conclusions. Of course, that's the case. Uh, but I think truth doesn't stand a chance without free speech. So it is rather the uh, the, the, the better route. Now, um, Andrew, there's a very moving uh, section in your book. Uh, for those of you who have not yet read this, really wonderful book, uh, Free Speech and Why It Matters. There's an artist, there's a, a chapter called The Self-Censoring artist in and i think this is one of the most moving passages of the book in which you describe what coercion does to the arts uh you at one point say and i quote we can all agree that the censorship of artists by tyrannous regimes is an abomination and yet there is something even more dispiriting about an artist who surrenders his or her freedom of expression voluntarily you go on to say for the true artist such obsequiousness is a kind of death. Would you say a word or two about the uh, the arts and um, 
uh, censorship. And just before I, I get there, I want to link this to a question in the comments on this topic. Jerry asks, not a week goes by when I do not get messages from opera companies and other arts organizations apologizing for their failure to be strong enough advocates for social justice, anti-racism, et cetera. What is happening to the arts here? I know these are not entirely the same question uh, and answer them both or either as you like. Well, we've, we've reached a point where there is now um, the, the, the predominant people within the arts world, the ones with the power to commission new works of art um, are overwhelmingly uh, uh, disciples of this ideology. And they have come to the view that the arts are really there as pedagogical tools. They are there to, to spread a message. Uh, and that to me is to misapprehend the purpose of art. Um, that is not to say that artists cannot uh, be political or pedagogic or anything else. But if you are an artist and you are being uh, compelled in that direction, right? So I've had playwright friends and writer friends and you know, you know, there's a thing called sensitivity readers now where a publisher will hire a sensitivity reader to check that the representation of characters uh, from minority demographics is not offensive. Um, but what this means in effect is that the artist is curtailing uh, their individual freedom and their artistic expression uh, for the purpose of a moral message. And actually, Morality, in my view, has very little to do with art. You know, the, the, some of the most exhilarating art that I have enjoyed and got the most out of is either from artists who are terrible human beings or even sometimes when the art itself does not have a positive moral message. Now, the idea that if you, if you, you know, you see it all the time at the moment where complaints about um, uh, television shows and movies and plays are often to do with things to do with either representation or depiction. Uh, I remember seeing a review of uh, David Lynch's last series of Twin Peaks where the writer was saying um, there's too much violence against women in the series and he needs to be called out for this. Well, the people committing the violence against women are not pleasant characters. It's not an endorsement of violence against women to simply depict it. It's such a fundamental misunderstanding. I mean, it's like saying uh, that Macbeth is an endorsement of regicide um, uh, simply because it depicts uh, the murder of, 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 um, of um, not Banquet, God, I can't remember now. Who's the king? In, Duncan, the murder of Duncan. So, th but this idea, or the scene with the infant, the scene where the child is killed, that's in endorsing infanticide, or, or that Titus Andronicus is endorsing rape simply by depicting rape. It's a weird thing, isn't it, that, that, that we've now got to the point where representation in art is seen as, as on a literal basis that all it is doing is 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 uh, it's the artist sort of telling you what is good and bad and i think that's what's happened to comedy in this in the uk particularly is a lot of comedy now that gets on tv particularly is is merely um a comedian telling uh, his or her audience what they should believe what they should think and if they don't do that they get called out and they don't get commissioned and they don't get back on tv and most of the people who contact me to say they they can't be creative anymore because they know they have to uh, follow a particular ideological line. It is absolute death for the artist, as I said in that the passage you read. It, 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 there's no room for creativity there. I think at, at the heart of so much art is moral ambiguity, because humans are morally ambiguous. And um, I think it, I think it's. A, but ultimately, what I will say, just to, to round that off, is that self censorship is always a choice. However, and it is true that if you are uh, an innovative and um, and, uh, and you're an artist who takes risks in terms of uh, how you represent things or what you create, maybe it's true that you are less likely to be commissioned or commercially viable in the current climate. But what I would say is that if, you're, if your goal as an artist is to be commercially viable, you can't really be said to be much of an artist at all. And I think 
above all, you should be faithful to your muse. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, this is a this is a huge topic. We could go on a, a, about at length because it really is related to everything you've been saying about human dignity and the question about, you know, what becomes of a human being if they stop listening to their own muse or the the light of their reason, their conscience. Um, it leads to the the implosion or or disintegration of the self. Um, it's very interesting to ask, you know, why is it that um, when art is subject to power, it actually loses its power, right? Because it 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 it's betrayed the, the you could say the muse, or you could say I think the its relation to the depth and complexity of reality. You know, as soon as it becomes subordinate, it's lost the freedom that allows it to communicate what it can at its best. I think that's absolutely right. And I think we can often detect it, can't we, when we see an artist has uh, made a decision for commercial reasons or because there's someone over his shoulder saying, this is what you, you ought to be doing. I think this is why so many people have lost patience with Hollywood as well. It's because you, nine times out of 10, you go and see a Hollywood film and now you get this sense of you're being, you're being hectored by a studio producer who thinks that you are a deeply immoral person and that you should uh, you should be more tolerant about gay people. So let's throw in these gay characters for no uh, apparent purpose in the plot, you know? And not that I care. I don't care that you see all sorts of different types of people on screen, you know, that's not the point. It's when it's obviously been shoehorned in to teach the audience a lesson that's yeah, no, when because I get that, yeah, No, exactly, because then it's coercive. We all know that there's great art that depicts uh, uh, racism or sexism or any other form of abuse or 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 disrespect uh, or suppression of human individuals. I mean, that, that, that art art is often doing that, but we we know when it's not doing that. When we're being coerced by uh, by by power rather than being illuminated by truth. Well, well, to give an example, that there's a recent television ad adaptation, a historical program where they've cast a black actor to play Anne Boleyn. Now, I wouldn't care about that. And I wouldn't have probably even, you know, if that had happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I'd have probably said, well, that's quite an interesting thing that they're doing there. Um, but but now I know why they're doing it. Why they're doing it is because they're saying to the audience, you live in a systemically racist society and you need to be educated and you need to, you know, so we're going to make Anne Boleyn black. Now, um, you know, there's nothing artistically interesting about that because of the intent behind it. When they cast uh, Francis de la Torre as Hamlet about 30 years ago, that was interesting. That's an interest. You could even do, say, an all black Hamlet that, and, and you might be doing something very artistically creative there. But if all it's about is, is saying that the audience are immoral and we need to make you better people, then it is banal. That is a really banal thing to do. And that's why that's such a boring thing. It's not because it's a black actor. It's not to do with race. It's to do with it, it, the artistry. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I think that there's a there's an added sense in which sometimes these arbitrary changes, which are taken undertaken in, let's just say, with good intention to to you know promote uh, uh, to 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 promote a, a inclusivity or however you might put it, often have sometimes can have the opposite effect. I mean, you know, there to portray something that could not have happened in the past because of prejudice, as if it was happening in the past is a very, I would say, complicated thing. I mean, there's a, and, and, and by no means, obviously, in the interest of the, the, the uh, 
principles of equality that one wishes to defend. I thought the same thing about the Queen's Gambit, fundamentally. I mean, you know, if it's the case that women were forbidden to play chess at a certain period, I mean, that's the fact that that is the, that's the historical truth that we, in, in competition. That's the historical truth that we need to grapple with, not pretend somehow it wasn't so. Uh, uh, because how can we change, uh, optim how can we advocate for equality in the now without actually admitting the depth and complexity of the barriers that uh, some people have faced in the past uh, and perhaps now? It's the same reason why the idea to me of censoring uh, current editions of Huckleberry Finn because of the use of racial slurs makes no sense to me because it roots it in the reality of the time for, first and foremost. So to erase that is almost to anesthetize the past and say things weren't as bad as they were. It, it actually uh, undermines the satire of the book. It undermines the impact of the book, which is, let's face it, an unambiguously anti-racist book. And you're actually making that uh, less impactful uh, through perhaps good intentions, but nevertheless wrong-headed. I know we need to conclude soon, but there's so many good questions. I just want to rapid fire uh, two or three others at you before we conclude. Um, thank you all for submitting these uh, tremendous questions. Lynn, uh, I think from Scotland asks, uh, says that she's very grateful for Andrew's comments, read the hate crime bill in Scotland. The bill as it stands now, right now, means a woman will risk a criminal charge for simply stating that sex is binary. The Scottish government are refusing to listen to the fears of women. We've seen as we're seen as hateful for raising very real concerns. The bill is terrifying. I hate what Scotland has become. But the question is, how can we make ourselves heard without being called hateful? You can't. And that's the, that's the problem, is that in the current climate, you will be called hateful for, for saying what you, what you believe to be true, uh, even for saying things that are objectively true, such as that we, we, there is such a thing as biological sex. However, uh, however much the, um, the SNP would, would like to wish uh, reality away, uh, they can't. Uh, all they can do is make people pretend uh, that it doesn't exist. And and the more people who are willing to stand up and risk being called all the worst names under the sun and perhaps even risk prosecution, the, that's the only way this is going to, to stop. It definitely isn't going to stop if we just silence ourselves and self-censor. Uh, that's, not, that's not the solution. Thank you. The next question is, how do we cope and treat the fake news argument? Today, while generally speaking, most people would agree that spreading vicious lies or misinformed information and false news is wrong. We see today, I think that's what the questioner meant, that the term of fake news has become an excuse filling the purpose of silencing people. Um, and this person points out this is done on both the left and the right and is easily uh, exploited by anyone. This is why you shouldn't censor people for being factually wrong. Uh, that's what I would say. Uh, if if something is factually wrong and demonstrably so, then show it, show it, prove, prove why it's wrong and produce better evidence. But no, don't censor it. I recently, and, and I note that a lot of the people who are now employed as fact checkers are ideologically partisan themselves and, and they don't really fact check at all. It happened to Christopher Rufo the other day. Um, he uh, He's the, um, the man who's very famous for um, being a kind of whistleblower for critical race theory in the ways which it's infiltrated schools in particular. Um, and uh, he put an article out and, and someone fact checked him as being false. And he actually took them to task for it. I think uh, he might have even suggested uh, the prospect of legal action. I don't know. I'd have to check that. But in the end, they had to say, actually, no, you were right. We just fact checked it wrong. And the reason a lot of, a lot of fact checkers are from that sort of social justice mindset. Uh, so and they don't believe in facts. 
What they believe in is what is expedient to their cause. So we frankly can't trust fact checkers. And I don't trust the, the label of fake news anyway, because as this, the questioner implies, it is so often used simply uh, when facts are inconvenient. Just call it fake news and then you don't have to worry about it. So just let people be wrong. And if you want to show that they're wrong, then do so. That's the way that we solve it. I uh, would very much like for us to continue uh, on and on, uh, but I think we must conclude. But if you'll f uh, allow me, on Andrew, uh, though I know I've encouraged everyone to uh, purchase your book, I do want to read uh, kind of a lengthy passage here or weave together a couple of passages, which I found particularly stirring uh, as we conclude. And then, of course, I'll give you a chance to make any final remarks that you'd like. Here I'm quoting from Andrew Doyle's Free Speech and Why It Matters. As social creatures, our fear of unpopularity is innate, yet to repress the truth is to leave unchecked a parasite gnawing at the soul. We make ourselves vulnerable because we are colluding with those we have deceived in what amounts to an artificial reality. The pressure to lie corrals us into a morally compromising position where, for the sake of our sanity, we learn to believe our own fictions, condemned to live in, as actors who have forgotten we are playing a role. More often than not, preference falsification is the symptom of the desire for an easy life. Conflict is hard. The appeal of ideologies is that they absolve us of the obligation to think for ourselves. Many, if not most, are willing to sacrifice their freedom of speech and independent thought for the consolations of certitude. It is in the interests of the powerful to encourage this kind of docility and thereby beget a flock of industrious sheep. Whatever the motive, desire to be liked, fear of animosity, submission to authority for the stability it brings, we find that in many cases, the greatest threat to free expression comes from ourselves. In On Liberty, 1859, John Stuart Mill repeatedly emphasizes the danger of outsourcing our moral agency to the putative wisdom of the crowd. Mill understood that our freedom of speech is not imperiled solely by the state's abuse of power, but also by what he describes as the, quote, tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling. His treatise is a cogent vindication of the primacy of the individual. And this chapter concludes, Ultimately, however, self-censorship is a choice. Even at a time when speaking out can have ruinous personal consequences, conformity and dishonesty for the sake of self-preservation are understandable, but an affront to our conscience and dignity. We might avoid the ire of the bullies in the short term, but the eventual impact of our collective silence will be an enervated and infantile culture. Andrew, I'm so grateful to you for writing this book and for joining us today. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? No, I think anything I would say spontaneously would not be as uh, as eloquent as what I wrote because I had time to think about it. So I'm going to cut my losses at this point. But just to say, it is 11 o'clock here and that's why I'm drinking wine. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm drinking during the day. Things haven't got that bad quite yet. <laughs> Andrew, um, uh, uh, Thank you very much. You um, have inspired me by your affirmation of your opponents um, on the question of free speech and given us an example, I think, of how we can help each other understand ourselves and the world. 
as best we can. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I want to encourage everyone to check out Andrew's book when you have a chance. And uh, I, know, I know not everyone may be uh, a part of it yet. Uh, there is going to be a little what one calls after-party discussion starting momentarily on Clubhouse. So if you'd like to join in on that, uh, please do. Thank you all for joining us. Andrew, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's episode was a recording of a live event, a lecture by and discussion with the journalist, satirist, and scholar of English literature, Andrew Doyle, about his new book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. Doyle is also the author of many articles, several plays, including Borderland, The Second Mr. Bailey, and Reacher's Point, all broadcast on the BBC, as well as two books of satire by Titania McGrath, Woke, A Guide to Social Justice, and My First Little Book of Intersectional Activism. We welcome you to join us, to send us your thoughts, leave us a review, to subscribe to this podcast if you like, and of course to sign up for other lectures, events, and soon-to-be-announced short courses on our website at www.ralston.ac. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.